Luther was uh, in the Augustinian monastery. He was there for about two years, and and we'll start today by uh, looking at at what happened once he became a priest after being a novitiate for a year, and then uh, in in 1507 in April he took holy orders and became uh, a priest. Uh, of course, this licensed him, authorized him to preside over the Mass. And Luther was filled with uh, anxiety over the prospect of, of, of presiding over the Mass for the first time. Uh, in order to become a priest, he'd had some, some theological training, of course. Uh, and then a month after taking holy orders, uh, in, in May of 1507, uh, it, the opportunity arose for him to, to celebrate the Mass for the first time. And, and he did this with friends and family. Uh, his father and mother came and, and relatives, everyone came to, uh, to, to observe. And Luther trembled at the thought uh, of, of, as the church understood it then, uh, according to the doctrine of transubstantiation, of holding what in substance was the body and blood of Christ. And so he came uh, at the point in the in the liturgy when he lifted up the elements unto God and, and almost broke down, couldn't, couldn't really continue, and sort of looked to uh, the abbot, uh, the prior, in charge of the monastery, and asked, can I, can I climb down from, from the altar? Should I, should I stop? And he said, no, go ahead. Actually, he said, faster, faster. Sort of just keep charging ahead, get it done. Um, and, and after the service, uh, Luther was shaken to the core uh, over this whole, whole ordeal. To make matters worse, his father was probably not terribly impressed uh, by, by the service, uh, accused him of being a disobedient son and, and said, it's more likely that the devil sent this lightning bolt and drove you into the monastery than God. And so Luther was, was shaken. He was sort of devastated uh, at, the end of, at the end of the ordeal. Not, not entirely sure whether uh, uh, his heavenly father's uh, displeasure was as strong as his, as his earthly father's. And so he lived with this kind of anxiety for, for some time. Now where we left off uh, last week, this is a picture of the, the Augustinian cloister in, in Erfurt. Where we left off last week, we were looking at monastic practices, and I, I made the comment that the sacrament of penance emerged out of medieval monastic practices. And self-flagellation, sort of wearing hair shirts would be, would be examples of these. But I thought today we would take a little time and try to climb into the mind of a medieval theologian and, and understand the doctrine uh, and, and the sacrament of penance in a little more detail. In the 13th century, ab about the time that uh, the observant and reformed monastic orders began to arise, uh, the church began to clarify its understanding of, of the sacraments. And, and in the Fourth Lateran Council in, in 1215, in the early 13th century, they named seven sacraments of the church. Uh, I thought I'd list them here, and, and uh, we can talk about how penance, as one of those sacraments, came to priority. I can never remember the order unless I start sort of 
think about the flow of life. The first is baptism. And then confirmation. And then marriage. Extreme unction. And holy orders, or becoming a priest. That's five. The last two, the sacrament of the mass and penance, down here at the bottom. Those are the seven, the seven sacraments as, as defined by the church from the 13th century. What's interesting to note, if you try to understand how, how penance uh, became so important in the life of the church, in the life of the laity, it's because it, if you think about it, these five sacraments here, generally speaking, would only be administered once. Maybe a few exceptions. Maybe if your spouse died, you'd be remarried and, and, and that sort of thing. Extreme unction. You wanted to try to administer something like last rites as a part of, the, of, of extreme unction. Um, as close to death as possible, I suppose, you could be right on death's door and make a, make a miraculous recovery and then have extreme unction later. But for the most part, uh, the first five sacraments listed there uh, were administered once. These two sacraments, mass and penance, could be administered throughout your life. Uh, and in fact, mass is the sort of high point, spiritually speaking, um, was commanded to happen once a year. You had to go to mass once a year. Um, and in order to prepare for mass, you availed yourself of the sacrament of penance. So the grace that's available in the Mass um, needs to be prepared for by the sacrament of penance. Um, so these two recurring sacraments uh, became pretty fundamental to the Christian life in, in late medieval piety. And it's especially uh, penance that became a kind of intimate uh, practice. Um, now let's think a little bit about, about how theologians understood the doctrine of or the sacrament of penance. There are at least three aspects of penance. Uh, the first is contrition. Second aspect is confession. The third aspect is satisfaction. Let's say a little bit more about, about what these are. In contrition, you it has to do with the posture of the heart the sincerity of your repentance. Um, are you sincere and remorseful for your sins? Uh, it has to do with, with the inside, in other words, with your heart. Um, confession has to do with the mouth. You go to a priest and you make confession. Uh, audible. You... you List your sins um, and, and, and declare them to the priest. The third aspect here, satisfaction, has to do with works of satisfaction. In order to keep this, I might as well just write hands. Something you would, you would do 
to sort of demonstrate the sincerity of your contrition and your confession. It could be giving alms to the poor. It could be uh, saying Hail, Hail Marys or, or an Our Father. Uh, it could be making a pilgrimage to a shrine uh, or, or to visit uh, a relic. Um, it could be something quite grand and extreme like going on a crusade. Um, a whole long list of possible satisfactions that could be, uh, could be assigned by the priest. And so the, the thought was to have heart, mouth, hands, your whole person involved in the sacrament of penance. You're preparing to receive the grace that will be offered in, in the Mass. Um, now, Luther in the, in the monastery, anxious over the supper uh, as, a, as a celebrant, and, and anxious as a Christian, this is what drove him into the monastery, his concern for his spiritual soul, uh, was caught up in the sacrament of penance and pursued it rigorously. So in the late medieval world, there were all kinds of uh, catechisms, essentially, sort of manuals to help you make your way through this almost sort of progression in the sacrament of penance. Um, if you were going to make... Uh, uh, make the, the sacrament of penance count, you needed to list as exhaustively as possible your sins. Uh, and so the catechisms were designed to rigorously expose all of the potential things that you, that you might have done in sin against God so that you could be as exhaustive as possible. Um, and, and Luther was caught up in this. Sometimes he, he says he would confess for, for seven or eight hours uh, and, and his confessor would say, Luther, you know, go home. Enough already. Um, but he wanted to make sure he was exhaustive as possible. Um, and of course, the heart of the sacrament of penance, um, pardon the pun, is, is the question of contrition. This became the real wrestling point for Luther and for, for so many others. Is your, is your contrition sincere? Is it, is it genuine? In fact, they made a further distinction between attrition and contrition. Anyone, anyone know? Any thoughts? Attrition would be remorse for your sin has more to do with the fear of punishment. Contrition is a purer form motivated to purely by, by love of God. And so you're, you're, you're aiming after the purest, most perfect form of contrition possible. Genuine humility and, and remorse and sorrow for your sin. Um, I mean, it's interesting to ask, so does this sort of touch down in, in, in our lives? This seems like sort of medieval theology. Maybe this is just the preoccupation of, of Luther in the monastery. But I read, I'd say... It's something we probably all still involve ourselves in in some way. We all can, can mistakenly enter into a kind of negotiation with God, sometimes sort of in our prayer life, thinking perhaps that the, that the measure of God's forgiveness for us is bound up and related to the measure of our remorse. You can sort of find yourself doing that if you're, if you're not careful. Well, I'm, I know I said I'm sorry last week 
and I meant it, but here I am again this week reading the same prayer of confession, but this time I'm really sorry. And, and in our spiritual uh, lives, we can, we can sometimes think that the God's full and perfect forgiveness is maybe hangs in some way on how sincere and remorseful we are uh, in, our, uh, in our contrition and confession. So this is the, this is the conundrum that Luther was, was caught up in. And in fact, uh, it became for him a kind of great, uh, a great trial. Um, the Germans have a wonderful word for this, anfechtungen, um, which is usually translated in English as, as trial. But it's, it's something stronger than that. It, it's sort of uh, a kind of deep melancholy a deep anxiety. Is my contrition sincere and full? Uh, Rod, Rod Rosenblatt from the White Horse Inn has a, has a great line uh, that this, this uh, concern for sincerity of contrition is what drove Luther's hammer as he began to, to, to come to terms with the gospel. And a, a particular man helped him with his teachings there in the monastery. Uh, a man named Johann von Staupitz, uh, who was the vicar general of the observant uh, Augustinian order. And Staupitz came along and, and helped persuade Luther. Luther, as a monk, is beginning to read the Bible and encounter the grace of God in the scriptures, uh, especially in Romans. And and Staupitz begins to help him in saying, before the matter of, of your contrition or your confession even enters in the picture, before that comes the grace of God, the electing grace of God. In terms of preparation for grace, Staupitz said, God prepares you for grace. His, his love uh, sort of is, his heart is big with mercy, and his love goes before uh, your, your, your sacrament of penance. Um, so, in other words, to, to prepare for grace, uh, one need only consider the love of God, the electing love of God that goes before. Um, and this became the kind of theological uh, heart of, of, Luther's, of Luther's critique. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. We'll, we'll come to the 95 Theses in, in a minute or two, but uh, developing Staupitz's understanding of the grace of God, um, that, it's, that it's, it's grace that prepares you to receive grace. Um, Luther began, began preaching sermons in 1518 and 1519, and the 95 Theses is certainly uh, an important document. It's a famous document, but the, the thing that actually made Luther, a, a, a public figure, um, sort of brought him to the wider attention uh, of the lady. was actually a sermon on the sacrament of penance that he preached several times in 1518 and in 1519. Uh, it, was, it was printed in sort of a loose-leaf form. Uh, there were 21 different publishing companies or printers throughout Europe sort of working overtime, printing off this sermon. In, in, in critique uh, of the sacrament of penance and, and, and showing uh, the laity that it's the grace of God that makes you ready uh, to receive the grace in the supper. Uh, and, and, and the popularity of the sermon is what really put Luther uh, on the map. 
got a quotation from, from the sermon, but I have to erase my writing here in order to be able to read it. This is from Luther's Sermon on Penance. You should not be debating whether or not your contrition is sufficient. Rather, you should be assured that after all your efforts, your contrition is not sufficient. This is why you must cast yourself upon the grace of God. Hear his sufficiently sure word in the sacrament and accept it in free and joyful faith and never doubt that you've come, that you've come to grace. That's that's the sort of theological heart of Luther's critique uh, of the sacrament of penance, uh, based on, on Staupitz and, and Augustinian teaching about, about the grace of God and, and, and the doctrine of election. Now, there's something that we haven't mentioned uh, at all, which is indulgences. And I intentionally started with with, with uh, this broader critique of, of penance because it gets right to the theological heart. One aspect of the sacrament of penance is indulgences. And it's just easy to see the abuse because money gets caught up in the exchange of souls to, to free them from purgatory, etc. Um, it's sort of an outrageous example and extreme of the sacrament of penance. But this teaching about uh, the sincerity of your, uh, of your, of your contrition and confession um, is the sort of theological heart. The, uh, the treatment uh, of, of indulgences, go back to the blank screen, has to do with that third aspect, um, contrition, confession, and satisfaction go back to how the medievals uh, theologians understood the sacrament of penance. They made a kind of curious distinction and grouped confession and, and contrition together and said that this concerns the guilt that one might have before God. And God is the only one who can, can, who can forgive your guilt. But there's another aspect of penance, and that is punishment. So there's a distinction between guilt and punishment. Punishments are something that can be imposed by the church and remitted by the church. So in order to demonstrate the sincerity of heart and, and the sincerity of, your, of the confession with your mouth, the priest might ask you to do some work of satisfaction. He might assign uh, some punishment. Uh, and this is what giving alms, saying prayers, etc. Uh, might be. A work of satisfaction that could demonstrate uh, the sincerity of the other aspects of penance. Well, indulgences arises as uh, a way to uh, substitute one act uh, of satisfaction or work of satisfaction for another. In about the 13th century, they came to develop uh, the idea that there was a kind of treasury of merit. 
that, that Jesus and especially the saints um, had so earned their salvation uh, with a superabundant level of good works that, they, that there was a kind of surplus left over. Um, and this kind of surplus would go into a treasury of merit, a sort of spiritual bank account. Uh, and the church could have access to it. Um, I mean, this is the, uh, you can find some discussion of this in, in Thomas Aquinas and, and others. Um, well, a little bit later, in the 14th, uh, sorry, 15th century, about 50 years before Luther comes on the scene, um, they began to suggest that you could, you could buy an indulgence for money and have access to the treasury of merits. So if a work of satisfaction uh, had been assigned by a priest, it was considered perhaps too much for someone to take on, you know, go on a crusade, well, I can't leave my house and my family and go on a crusade, uh, or make a, a, a pilgrimage that's too far. Um, if the work of satisfaction is too much, you could simply give money and buy an indulgence and have your work of, sac uh, of, of satisfaction commuted by access to the treasury of merits. Um, now, it's appropriate, I think, to, to think about this somewhat cynically. So my cynical statement is, there's another kind of stroke of genius in that uh, in about 50 years before, uh, before Luther comes on the scene, indulgences could be applied not just to people sort of living in real time, but also to those in purgatory, which radically expands the number of people who could be involved in, in the transaction of, of indulgences. You can now buy an indulgence to have uh, uh, works of satisfaction that people are working out in purgatory commuted for your, for your dead loved ones. Um, so this is, uh, this is an example of, of, uh, of how indulgences comes on the scene. Now, of course, buying an indulgence... I think I have a picture of one here. Uh, buying an indulgence is... Oh, here's a quote from Johann Tetzel. This is, this is maybe, maybe worth, uh, worth reading. Don't you hear the voices of your wailing dead parents and others who say, have mercy on me because we are in severe punishment and pain? For this you could redeem us with small alms, and yet you do not want to do so. Uh, that's an example of a of a sermon from Tetzel. It, uh, well, the trafficking in indulgences became, I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear, big big business. Uh, and so maybe it's time to take a minute or two to meet some of the Renaissance popes who were uh, involved in, uh, in, in the sales uh, of indulgences. This uh, was the pope as Luther was a young, as a young boy, coming of age, I think uh, this is uh, Pope Alexander uh, Rodrigo Borgia, uh, one of the Borgia popes, who, uh, who died in 1503, so just before Luther goes into the, goes into the monastery. Um, the Renaissance popes uh, were, were really a, a wild bunch. Uh, I don't know how else to put it. Um, administratively, they were very talented. Um, they were great patrons of the arts, etc. Um, morally speaking, uh, they were they were quite depraved. In fact, I'm I'm pretty sure the Catholic Encyclopedia 
says of Pope Alexander, the quote is something like, history judges him to be one of the most depraved popes ever. Um, he, he was a Borgia pope who uh, had many mistresses living with him in the, in the papal, papal palace. He, in one case, uh, uh, sired three or four children uh, by one of his mistresses whom he'd married off to sort of a friend. While she was married, he had children with her. Some of the more famous names you, you probably know, Lucretia Bo uh, Borgia, who, who became a, a, a talented poisoner. Um, uh, uh, Cesare Borgia, who, who became a, a cardinal. Um, another mistress, uh, Giulia Farnese, he made her uh, brother a cardinal, and he later became Pope Paul III, who, uh, who actually called the, the Council of Trent. Um, there's all kinds of stories. I can't resist one, just one, because uh, it's a pretty entertaining line. Um, his his son, his one of his oldest sons, uh, Giuliano, at one point disappeared, was presumed murdered, and so the 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 Vatican officials had the the Tiber River dragged looking for his body, and 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 someone quipped the the famous line, uh, finally. Uh, uh, pope, uh, the Pope has become a fisher of men, uh, looking, <laughs> looking for the, the body of his son. Um, so this is the Pope uh, shortly before um, Luther goes into the monastery. Uh, another Renaissance Pope at the time um, of Luther's sort of spiritual crisis is uh, Julius II. Um, Cardinal della Rovere, who had a running feud with, with uh, the Borgias and had been in exile for a number of years, um, he returns and becomes uh, becomes Pope Julius II. He's sometimes known as the warrior pope. Uh, he liked to lead the papal armies into battle uh, and serve uh, preside over the over the mass in, in full battle armor um, as the as the vicar of Christ. Um, but he was also a lavish patron of the arts. He he was a patron for Michelangelo. And of course, you might guess from the picture, it was his dream to build uh, the biggest church in Christendom, a new, uh, a new and beautiful church, uh, St. Peter's Basilica. And so he's there uh, planning, uh, planning what St. Peter's uh, Basilica is going to look like. And this led him on, on a, a pretty aggressive indulgence-selling uh, campaign um, to, to, to raise money. Um, for the church. The Pope, uh, there's a, this is, that shows the St. Peter's Basilica under construction, and this is the old St. Peter's uh, off here in the left. Um, that's actually a, a 16th century sketch. We don't know who the artist is. And then uh, here's Leo, Leo X, um, the last, uh, one of the last of the Medici popes. Um, he's actually the pope who, who excommunicated Luther. Um, we'll, we'll meet him a little bit later. There's, a, there's an indulgence. This is one of uh, Leo X's indulgences from about 1516. Uh, that's what they actually look like. Um, so in the, in the general context, uh, the papacy is, is raising money for, uh, for the building of, of St. Peter's. Um, that's going on in the background. But in the local sort of context, uh, right, right in Germany, right near, right near Luther, 
Um, an indulgence campaign was launched by this gentleman, uh, Albert of Brandenburg, uh, who is a grand master in the Teutonic Order um, and, and an aspiring uh, clergyman who, who lusted after, after more power, uh, more money, um, I also have to say more women. He, he famously traveled around with, with all of his mistresses dressed like page boys. Um, I don't, don't think anyone was probably uh, confused. But Brandenburg uh, decided that he wanted the income that would come from the Archbishopric of Mainz, a large area in the center of Germany. And if you were the archbishop, all the taxes uh, would come would come to you, and, and of course you would be receiving most of the profit from the sale of indulgences in that region. And so he uh, did what most of us do. That's another picture of him by Lucas Cranach. Uh, if you want to buy something and you don't have the money for it, you take out a loan. And here he went to Augsburg. Um, that's Jacob the Rich, uh, the Fugger uh, banker, who was the, the emperor's banker. He went to the, to the emperor's banker and took out a loan and went to, uh, I'll go back, went to the pope and bought the archbishopric of Mainz for about 20,000 ducats, whatever, whatever that meant, and then another promise of another 10,000 ducats when he was confirmed um, in, his, in his offices. And then he secured the services of this gentleman, Johann Tetzel, here with an indulgence box, one of the great indulgence preachers in, in Germany. Um, he secured from the papacy the services of Tetzel. And the idea was to launch an aggressive indulgence selling campaign and split the proceeds with the Pope. Uh, with his half of the money, Albert of Brandenburg plan, planned to repay the loan to the bankers. Uh, and, and, and that way the Pope would profit, he would profit, the loan would be repaid. And, and so this is what brings Tetzel in and near the area of Wittenberg, uh, where Luther uh, was a minister. There's a, this is a caricature from the 16th century um, of Tetzel here. This is the famous line, the coin in the coffer rings and a soul from Purgatory Springs. Um, this is what brings Tetzel into the area. Uh, and so Luther did something which was not at all um, unusual, he raised questions about the trafficking and in indulgences, as well as the as well as the sacrament of penance. This was not all that unusual. Uh, Cardinal Cajetan, uh, a man that Luther will, will will have a run in with in a few years, himself in the very same year uh, published a kind of document asking for the church to clarify the meaning of indulgences. And in 1518, uh, the Sorbonne, the theological faculty in Paris in the Sorbonne, uh, suggested to the church that they suspend the sale of indulgences because of so many abuses, and that the church stop and, and take up the matter of, of, of indulgences and its relation and, and importance to the sacrament of penance. So Luther wasn't alone in, in publishing the 95 Theses, um, not by any stretch. And so he nails the 95 Theses uh, on the church door in Wittenberg. Uh, we hope that happened. It probably, it, it may very well have. We don't really know. Um, and asked for an academic debate within the church and within the university 
about the whole practice of sacrament of penance and specifically about about indulgences. And the rest is is uh, is sort of history. Uh, I thought we'd spend the last minute or two just thinking about some of the theses so you could kind of get a feel um, of them. I pulled out three, maybe three themes. There are lots of important themes in, in the 95 theses, but three come to mind in particular. Um, Luther was uh, on some level concerned about what the trafficking and indulgences meant uh, for the poor in his, in his, uh, in his parish. Uh, and so here's a, a, an idea, uh, you get a sense. Christians are to be taught that he who sees a needy man and passes him by, yet gives his money for indulgences, does not buy in papal indulgences, but God's wrath. That's one thesis for, for discussion. Uh, another thesis 46, Christians are to be taught that unless they have more than they need, they must reserve enough for their family needs and by no means squander it on indulgences. So one theme in the 95 Theses is sort of uh, raising questions about pastoral abuses, sort of pastoral issues in the life of the congregation. Are people spending money they don't have uh, to buy indulgences that they may not need? Um, another theme is a perceived possible threat to the authority of the papacy. Uh, the unbridled preaching of indulgences makes it difficult even for learned men to rescue the reverence which is due the Pope from slander or from the shrewd questions of the laity, such as, why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of holy love and the dire need of the souls that are there if he redeems an infant number of souls for the sake of miserable money with which to build a church? The former reasons would be most just, the latter is most trivial, or maybe even the best, thesis on this question. Again, why does not the Pope, whose wealth today is, is greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus, build his own Basilica of St. Peter with his own money rather than with the money of poor believers? But at the heart is, is the, the critique of the sacrament of penance that we've, we already saw. Um, trust in God, not in indulgences is, is the most important theme. They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. And so in a, a year later, in a commentary or explanation of the 95 Theses, um, Luther clarifies uh, and, and, and focuses on, on his critique. May every single sermon be forever damned, which persuades a person to find security and trust in or through anything, whatever, except the pure mercy of God, which is Christ. It isn't uh, the sacrament of penance that makes you acceptable and pleasing to God. It's the grace of God that comes before, and then God calls sinners to himself and, and grants you repentance and contrition as a fruit of grace and of the gospel. So the next week... Uh, we'll, we'll uh, get right into the heart of, of Luther's controversy uh, with, the, with the College of Cardinals and the Pope. Is there any, maybe time for one question, yeah? Yeah? Uh, uh, the uh, perceived threat to the authority of the Pope, um, the shrewd questions that people have, why not use the Pope's own money 
Okay, we're out of time. The, uh, the children are restless. <laughs> uh, let's pray here before we, before we go. Gracious Father, we give you thanks for your goodness and mercy to us. We, uh, we take comfort in Luther saying that after all our wrestling and wrangling on the inside, we know that our, our contrition is, is certainly not sincere enough to win your grace and favor, uh, but that Christ has won it for us. And we thank you for the grace and love of God that, that goes before and grants us true repentance. Uh, help us to be mindful of that today, uh, that we might serve, um, uh, serve you and, and glorify you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.